Trigger warning, this episode contains discussions of depression and suicide. There's also a bit of explicit language in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, my name is Esai Humu. I am a storyteller and I live in Benin City and sometimes in Accra. Meet Esai, a storyteller from Nigeria's far south. She remembers telling a lot of lies as a kid. <laughs> Trust me, I know how that sounds. But she just had an appetite for telling stories. So she made up really catchy experiences and told them to anyone who cared to listen. She says she told these stories solely to entertain her listeners, who were mostly her cousins and siblings. This one time, I was at their house and then for some reason, I started telling them that a boy in my class was caught in the bathroom with like, there were like bottles of beer all around him. He had been drinking and getting drunk. Maybe that would have been believable, except for the fact that I was in primary three. So there's no way a, what, seven, eight-year-old boy will have bottles of beer in the toilets. And yeah, I just used to come up with like fantastic things like that, just to give people gist. And so a lot of people like talking to me because I would just say the randomest things. She grew up in Benin with her mom and siblings while her dad lived and worked out of the state. Esai lived in a close-knit community with her maternal grandmother and some members of her extended family as neighbors. She and her siblings were raised Catholic by their mother. I, I used to hear a lot about how, oh, God is um, omnipresent, all-seeing, all-hearing. And my mom can hear you if you are whispering from three streets down. And she was just <laughs> always there. And so for the longest time, right, when I thought about God, my mom's face just showed up. And I think that influenced how I relate with women in positions of power and just women generally in my life. So and my mom was very important to me. I wouldn't say that we were particularly close. For example, she used to read a lot of Mills and Boone when I was growing up. So that was how I picked up reading, right? So she gave me that. But we have only just recently become friends. As for her dad, well, she tells it best. I did not have an emotional attachment to my dad. I don't think I do now. I mean, I feel a kindness to him now, but I still don't think I have an emotional attachment because I don't know that he gave a lot of that. And so I just didn't reciprocate. But he always took care of us financially, himself and my mom. And so, like, all of our needs were met. The first couple of years as a child were good for SI. Until one incident brought back memories and feelings she didn't even realize she harbored. And I was still feeling, like, trash. And, and so, like, there's this pain everywhere. And, and so I opened the scissors and I just started cutting my arm. Like, small, like, um, test marks or whatever. But then it hurts and um, I'm bleeding. But it's also grounding. It's like, yeah, okay, so now this is the physical thing that we can see, we can touch her hurt. This explains the pain. Hi, my name is Aisha Salahuddin and I like girls. This is a storytelling podcast about African women 
and the different experiences life throws at us for being women. In this episode, we follow the story of SI as she tries her best to navigate anxiety and depression. Um, so how I make sense of the world, right, has a lot to do with sex and sexual innuendos. I'm, I'm not 100% sure why, but if I have to understand something, or if I need to explain something, like a sexual innuendo is always close. It's just a thing that got, um, it really escalated when I was, when I became a teenager, right? But it's just always been there. And I think the last time we spoke, um, I alluded to the fact that maybe because um, sex was a huge part of my childhood. And people hear that and say, whoa, what the fuck? Um, it wasn't consensual. <laughs> um, so I was molested as a child, I think from when I was 16. Um, from when I was, I think from when I was six, seven. I can't remember exactly. I just have like some few um, recollections. I know who, um, I can remember one or two instances, but I couldn't, it was almost like I forgot up until the point where, when I was 13 and then something happened and like, the dam of my memory just burst open. Before going further into her story, Essa, I wanted to make something clear. First of all, I've, I feel the need to say, when I say sex is how I understand the, the world, right? Um, is sex in like an abstract phenomenon and not the act? Um, I wouldn't say that I'm particularly very interested in sex as an adult, to be honest. Just the not the illusion of it like um you hear it in songs in literature just um using it as an analogy what, what is it they call it it's a simile or whatever um to help you understand other things okay i get that as i says she can't pinpoint what pushed or triggered her as a child to start using sexual innuendos to navigate the world it just happened do i think it's because of um the sexual trauma when i was younger not particularly but you never know with these things right um maybe that was the foundation but i have no idea to be honest remember that the memory of her abuse was repressed and she didn't recollect most of it till she was like 13 well something happened that made her remember Essa was caught up in a facebook scandal by her uncle and dad so i was 13 and I just discovered two things, Facebook and Lil Wayne. <laughs> so I had an account on Facebook and I was listening to a lot of Lil Wayne. And if you have ever listened to any Lil Wayne song, ever, is dripping with sexual inappropriateness. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason why a 13-year-old should have been listening to um, a dirty version. But I was listening to a lot of it. And on my, um, what's it called? updates, status updates or whatever. I was quoting a lot of it without quotes and without attributing. Just maybe if you went and said, um, fuck her in the ass, fuck her in the whatever. I just take a, a chunk of that that I thought was really euphonic and sounded good or that I related with for some odd reason and then I post it. And so that I guess attracted people and i'll try to be sexy right it was during the time of brick and lace in a displays ah oh, the love is wicked wicked <laughs> and so i just i just wear like what i thought was a cute coat with like anna montana and stuff 
and pose and then my brother my younger brother will help me take pictures and then i'll post the flyers once on facebook some of the friends she made on facebook became her friends in real life they shared contact details and called each other frequently trouble started one day when her dad who still lived out of state called her he was really pissed and he screaming he's so mad calling me like a prostitute like just i was like waiting they are call for yeah Bottom line, and my uncle had gone to see his friend in Abuja. My uncle lived in Abuja. My dad did as well at the time. My uncle had gone to see his friend, and his friend was telling him about, oh, this new small league um, that is always sexting with blah, blah, blah. And um, my uncle's friend shows him pictures of this small league, and it's my pictures. And my uncle tells my dad, and my dad calls me and just starts screaming and all of that. Basically, Someone was using SI's photos on Facebook to catfish thirsty grown men. SI's dad didn't know this. And he kind of just assumed that she was the one sexting older men. And I remember feeling so dirty. Like, what? And I, I was convinced that it couldn't have been me because I wasn't doing that. But my dad wasn't listening. And he was just so disappointed and screaming and being really mean. And... For some weird reason, all of that just really, it was like someone punched me in the gut and then like bad stuff that had been um, lurking behind a screen just burst open. And I felt this bottomless despondence. That's the only way I can explain it. I just felt, I don't think I've ever felt that bad in all of these years after. It was just the first time that and I was like, what the fuck? Her dad's reaction hurt her more than she thought. The entire thing triggered a series of emotions that she had never experienced before. And my mom was ill at the time, so she was in the hospital. And it was just my grandma with us in the house. And I was, I was so sad. I didn't know what to do. I was so, so sad. I felt like a worthless piece of shit. And so I walked to my grandma and I'm like, Be mom, please, can you give me scissors? And she gives me scissors. And I had really, really long hair at the time. And my dad really loved it. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm going to cut this. One, because I don't think I deserve to be beautiful. But also because, yeah, um, my dad loves this so much. We'll show him. And then I cut it. And I was still feeling, like, trash. And and so, like, there's this pain everywhere. And, and so I opened the scissors and I just start cutting my arm. Like, small like um test marks or whatever but then it hurts and um i'm bleeding but it's also grounded it's like yeah okay so now this is the physical thing that we can see we can touch her hurt this explains the pain si's dad eventually found out that she wasn't the owner of the account texting this older guy but the damage was already done that just opened the floodgates and in the preceding um, in the days to come, I just started remembering stuff. It was like, I, I did not even know that I had blanked. I was just like going about my childhood. I'm 13, GSS3, or I think SS1. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh my fucking God, somebody abused me as a child. Did you ever talk to anyone about it? Not for a really long time, no. Who was I going to talk to? And I didn't have the words anyway to explain. I was dating. Things kind of went haywire for Essa from that moment. She cried a lot in school. And that didn't go unnoticed by her classmates. 
When asked, she made up stories to justify her frequent tears. So, from that point on, I had this great sadness. I don't think sadness is the word, right? But pain, just a feeling of worthlessness. There was a lot of crying. I was constantly crying all of the time. Like, I don't know how many of my imaginary uncles I killed at school just to make it make sense. I'd be in class weeping and they're like, what happened? And I'm like, oh, my uncle died. Nobody died. I was just crying. And I was constantly sad and moody and just like wanting to be alone and just lethargic. And my dad actually started teasing me and calling me Ogbanje. And like people at home, when, when I got like that, to be like, oh, they have started again. They have started remoting you again or she has started again. And then like, so my mom is this bubbly, nice person. People just rally around her. She's really cool. And, and so sometimes um, some people will come to the house and be like, oh my God, um, it's almost like it wasn't your mom that gave birth to you. You are so different, always moody, always squeezing your face. And it was, it was the worst. <laughs> it was horrible. It was horrible. Let's take a break to hear from our sponsors. When we get back, I'll tell you what people thought about SI's mood change. Hi, my name is Tonya, ex 9 to fiver and current bakery owner. I was able to achieve my long life dream of owning a business, all thanks to the target savings feature on Piggyvest. I knew working for another person wouldn't bring me joy, so I started planning my exit. To own a business, I knew I needed capital, a location, equipment, and staff. So I created a personal target plan and started saving weekly. 12 months later, I am happy to say that I am the proud owner of Bell's Bakery. With Piggyvest, there's no dream too big for you to achieve. So please don't stop dreaming. Visit piggyvest.com or download Piggyvest from Google Play or Apple Store and register to start using the target saving option today. Welcome back. For context, SI's mom is a psychiatric nurse. So I asked her if at any point her mom spoke to her about how she was feeling. So two things I think were happening at that point. First one is author's blindness, right? Just the proximity um, blinds you. So I don't right. know that she did the matter objectively because... Like, this is her daughter and all of that. The second thing that's really important is, you know how teenagers are. I did not have the words to communicate as cleanly as I am right now. So a lot of it was showing up as um, just the regular teenage outbursts that people have come to expect from um, people in puberty. So there was just a lot of screaming, all of that, right? And so she thought that it was, you know, just that teenage hala going on so for a really really long time no she did not um take it seriously when si first realized that she could be mentally ill she was around 17 it was 2013 she met an older man who was her friend let's call him x for privacy purposes he helped her realize that she wasn't cursed or under any sort of spiritual attack like she had assumed for most of her life she met extra co-worker of hers when she worked at a radio station in Benin. And my mental health is such a huge part of my life that if you're close to me, it will take you max 
maybe now I'm a lot better at hiding it. Maybe like a month. But back then, it would take you max three days for you to clock that or more. <laughs> Something they occur. And so anyway, we we're texting a lot. And I, I used to be really, really bad then. And I was calling him a lot. And he was calling me a lot. And sometimes I would have trouble sleeping. Or I'd be asleep and then I would wake up at like 2 a.m. screaming, just afraid, terrified. And it was this recurring fear that somebody was abusing my younger siblings. And I'd just be afraid. And I'd call him and he'd talk me like down. After one of SI's many episodes, he asked her to download Instagram and check out the post of a spoken word artist and mental health advocate, Basi Ikbi. Basi is a Nigerian-American writer with bipolar disorder. In this particular post that SI saw, Basi explained one of her bipolar episodes. And for a moment there, SI felt seen. And you know that thing where people stumble and have to sit down because the weight of the realization is like, what mm-hmm. the fuck? And it was like, oh my God. The first thing was, this happens to other people? That was the first thing. And then the second thing was, wow. And it's that whole thing of, it is so important for us to read and find shared truths. I cannot explain. I don't know why, but that was life-changing. was like, there is... And so for a while, I thought that because she understood so clearly, then I had bipolar as well. And my official diagnosis is depression and anxiety, right? But for a long time, it was like, there is a word for this. And then I just went to Google and just learn about stuff, right? It was like, there's a word for this thing. It's not a personal defect and it's not just me. As I became more aware of mental illness, she knew she wasn't alone and that she wasn't cursed, but it didn't change how her anxiety and depression made her feel. Later that year, still 2013, on Christmas Day, she had this huge fight with her brother that escalated things. She was getting dressed, ready to head out to see a friend. And then my brother comes upstairs. I, I was in the bathroom trying to change my pad. My brother comes upstairs really mad that I was supposed to wash plates. And so me now, I think I was giving him attitude as well. It's like, I'm coming. Like, hello, I'm in the... And it just... Things just um got escalated really quickly. And he was beating me, right? And I was screaming. And then my parents came in and like, Picture me on the floor in the bathroom wearing just um, my panties with like a full pad and like just crying. I was not the most coherent person. And somehow the Olodo in me chose that point to tell them that I had been cutting myself. So after that first incident when I was 13, I'd done it a couple more times, right? So I was trying to explain to them how shitty I feel. And I really expected that. So um, some of my aunts are psychiatric nurses as well. And so it was my mom, my dad, one of my aunties there. And I really expected that they would get it. I really did. I remember my aunt saying I wasn't actually depressed. I, I had just been watching too much E. And I thought what? it was cool to cut myself. Yeah. But that's not the craziest part of this particular incident. And so I spent like all of the nights leading up to the next morning on the floor. At some point I fell asleep, just crying. And when I woke up in the morning, my dad comes and says, get dressed, we're going somewhere. 
I wasn't told where or anything like that. And I get bundled into a car and they're just driving off like outskirts of town. And honestly, I thought that they had had enough of me and my wala and they were just going to like throw me away or like just just throw me out like trash and just move on with their lives. That was how she did. I felt about myself and I was really, really scared. You won't believe where they took her to. Turns out they were driving me to like some native doctor in some what or whatever. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, trying to cleanse me or I don't know what the fuck, man. And then this native doctor is like talking trash, trying to talk to the spirits in me. I mean, I was like, "Show you the wine, mini, we are Chris." And so I'm like, "Ah, okay, you're looking for show, no problem." And I start moving, and I'm like, "I am possessed." I initially put on a show, she thought it would be funny to pretend to be actually possessed. But this native doctor did some weird ritual that involved cutting her scalp with a blade. That's when she clocked that it wasn't a joke. And so I was just optimizing for get out of here in one piece. And so I just calmed down really quickly. What is it that you want me to do? And they're like doing stuff and then he gives me like this calabash, tells me to walk into the bush, not look back, get somewhere, do it round like a couple of times, throw it away, run back. And I'm like, bro, if you ask me to crawl with my head, I will do it. I didn't say that out loud, but that's like the inner dialogue. And I do all of that. And I come back. I shall survive the trip, right? This is Christmas Day, by the way. <laughs> and then... We drive back to Benin and back to the house. And I remember my mom calling me upstairs and holding my hand and asking about the scars. And I go, so now you want to talk to me? And I walk away. And honestly, I thought that was the end of our relationship because I felt so betrayed. Let me retrace this bit just so it's clear why this event really hurt SI. So her fight with her brother triggered her to tell her parents that she had been cutting herself and that she feels generally low and tired of everything. Their reaction was to take her to a native doctor to, and I'm using air quotes here, cast the demons out of her. So when her mom held her arms after that native doctor episode, asking what was wrong with her, SI felt that that should have been their first reaction and not taking her someplace outside home and getting someone to cast the evil spirits out of her. What about your dad? Did he say anything? Um, like I said, there's not a lot of emotional um, connection there, right? And so I guess this was also the problem growing up. I placed my mom on some sort of pedestal, right? She was the only one I had expectations of. My dad could have done anything and it was like, mm, I don't know this nigga. But I mean... To be fair now, I get it. He was only trying to do what he thought was the best, right? With the information that he had. But yeah, um, I didn't let go of that for a really long time. As expected, she didn't come out of the episode feeling good about herself. She felt worse and lonelier. It made her more reliant on X. Remember X, her older author friend who introduced her to the concept of mental illness. At the time, he was the only one who showed her that he cared for her and understood her. 
I felt very betrayed and very alone. I felt like, you know, when you are in a hurry to leave your house and you have like a trash bag full of trash, like organic trash and plastic, mm-hmm. just a bunch of things. And you go away, you're supposed to go away for like a day, but you end up going away for like a month. And then you come back and like nature has happened. And so it's like a lot of maggots and slimy and smelly. I felt exactly like that. I just felt like this terrible, terrible thing um, that had nobody and the people who I was supposed to have, well, didn't like me so much. And that made me very reliant on this older person I told you was in my life. And I was just looking for, yeah. I guess, belonging. Because you felt like he was probably the only one that understood what was going on with you, Va. Oh, it wasn't probably. He was the only person mm-hmm. who acted like he, he was the only adult who acted like he did and who didn't make me feel like there was something irrevocably wrong with me and who didn't make me feel wrong. After that experience, Essai kind of just floated through life. She tried to deal with her mental health the best way she could. Yeah, and so I started to... um do a bit of drugs. <laughs> I started to smoke a lot, like regular cigarettes, but also just like weed. She indulged in this during her secondary school and university years with a friend of hers who was going through similar issues. His name was Toby. They would link up in random hotels in Benin to smoke weed. SI drank a lot too, but she soon realized it wasn't going to work long term. So she made a conscious effort to stop drinking. It feels like what's secondary school kids or like when you just get into uni and you have like freedom it feels like that thing where everybody's just doing drugs and smoking yeah except we were running away from stuff Mm. right so it was a distraction did it help you yeah not at all not at all i'm not sure what strain of weed the pills did not help at all (laughs) as well i am sure of that one but the weed i thought would help but Mm. did not like I used to wake up having the craziest depressive episodes. It just wasn't helpful. And I used to drink a lot as well at the time. When she was in her third year at the University of Benin, she pressed pause on the drugs too. And that meant cutting off some of her old friends, including Toby. Let's take a break. When we get back, I'll tell you what happened with SI when she graduated from uni. I used to be the biggest impulse spender. As long as I had money in my account, I would always find something to spend it on. Food, clothes, shoes, you name it. I just couldn't resist the temptation to spend. Piggyvest saved me, especially its safe lock feature. Whenever I have money lying around that I do not want to be tempted to spend, I immediately put it in a safe lock. Then I can spend the upfront interest I get without any guilt. I also love that I can lock my money for as little as 10 days. Honestly, not using the safe lock option on PiggyVest is like building a house without a roof. Start saving with PiggyVest today. Welcome back. As I graduated from uni where she studied human kinetics in 2015. In 2016, she moved to Lagos where she had gotten a job. Some random day at work, you know, impulsively. As I decided to get a tattoo, she called the tattoo artist she knew from her days in Benin. And so I called this guy and I'm like, hey, I'd like to get a tattoo or whatever. I mean, I'm at work. And he goes, oh, Omar, it's so terrible what happened to Toby. 
And I'm like, I'd stop talking to him because if you're going to stop drugs, you have to cut yourself from that group. If not, it's mm-hmm. not going to happen. So I'd stop talking to him. And so I'm like, what happened to Toby? And I find out that he was beaten to death with a plank of wood. And I felt so bad. Hey, I felt so bad. I felt so guilty because I knew that like we were both running away from emotional stuff, like bad mental health and just terrible family lives. And I felt like I'd made it out and he hadn't and I'd left him there. And so well, looking back now, I see that this was what caused the sleep. But back then, I didn't. I just thought I'd cry for a day and move on. But my mental health that I was managing before just went to like sub zero, and everything was like woof. Like she said, hearing about Toby's death triggered her in ways she didn't anticipate. That was the first time I tried to kill myself, and it was very elaborate. It really was elaborate. SI knew the combination of pills to take that would essentially kill her, and she planned to take the pills at Obudu Resort. Obudu is a really lovely resort in Cross River State, southern Nigeria. So, SI made a plan right. But to get to Obudu from Lagos, she had to pass through Benin, where her parents lived. That's just the geography of the location. SI says, somehow, when she got to Benin, she stopped at her parents' place, and that pretty much prevented her from carrying out her plan. So you went home? I don't know how, but yes, I was outside my parents' house. and. I did not come out for like three months. Um, so I, I sort of went missing from like all of my friends and social media and whatever. I was just incredibly, terribly sad. I did not bathe. I did not get up. I didn't even know if I ate. Like, and that was the first time my mom got it. As I was unable to function and perform mundane tasks like doing the dishes, brushing her hair, or getting out of bed to shower or eat. It was at this point that her mom realized SI needed professional help. She saved me. My mom saved my life. She's the only reason why. Like, yeah. And she comes to my room one day and says, if you don't, if you don't go and get help, you're going to die. And so that's like the mental health professional talking, right? And like, yeah. And so, and she had gotten context. So um, while I was at home, I was writing on like a notepad. And for some reason, my aunt's stupid husband came to visit one day. I was looking through my things and found my journal and showed it to my mom. And I'd been writing about being abused. And yeah, so my mom comes. Yeah, and she's crying. Oh my God, I'm a bad mom. And I'm like, you're not. And yeah, so she just gets context, right? And yeah, she begs me to go to the hospital. And I go to the psychiatric hospital in Benin. And they make me do this stupid test. I thought it was stupid. It's just like exam. Like over 200. If you never over 500 questions, yes. Repetitive questions. Like if you're not mad before you start that test you're going to run mad (laughs) while doing it it's so shitty and like i was feeling it like exam like finish feeling it you're like oh come tomorrow for results and then i come back 
for the results and they described me to a T. Like, <laughs> they, like one paragraph captures wow. all that I am and all that is wrong with me. <laughs> so then the and test so, was not as useless as you thought it, it was. It was not a little bit useless, not even a tiny bit. So on this day in 2016, as I got her diagnosis of anxiety and depression, she was matched with a consultant psychiatrist. And we start therapy weekly. And so that was the first time I was face to face with like somebody who had my time, a professional who had my time. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and yes, how did that, that go? Hmm. Therapy is like you become an unhooded clitoris. Ah, yes, you see, you see what I'm saying you about didn't. The <laughs> If you're wondering what's so funny, remember when SI mentioned navigating the world through sex and sexual innuendos at the start of this episode? We're just really excited that she used an innuendo during the conversation. Okay, back to SI getting therapy. Yes, you are exposed. Like, all of the bad things inside of you if you, if you have a really good therapist, without saying much, they will bring you to open your mouth and say it. And you're exposed. And it's terrible. It's horrible. It's painful. But it helps so much. Oof. Yeah. And so um, I got prescribed meds. And um, it, every week he used to make me do like assignments. So after our early session, it would give me like a prompt, something to do. And this one time, he asked me to speak to my family. Because back then, I was carrying a lot of anger. Oof. I was carrying a lot of anger. And so we had like this session. My brother was in Ghana at the time, but he joined over the phone. Therapy helped her process and express her grievances towards her family members. She also got to see things from their own point of view. Just all of the grievances. It was years and years and years of hurt. And it helped me gain context as to like what they were thinking as well. But it mostly just helped me let it out. I want to know like um, your siblings, how do they feel about all of it? Especially when you sort of talked about how you were feeling. Um, and you said everything, basically. Um, I think the most important person at first was my elder brother. I had a lot of anger towards him because um, I thought he was an accomplice in my hurting. After speaking with him, though, I, I sort of understood we're, we're just kids. He's like three years older than I am. And I think he goes through his own stuff as well as does everybody. And so that helped us repair our relationship. Again, that was the first step. It took like years in the making. But I'm very glad that from then on, I was pretty honest with my siblings about my mental health because it helps me speak with them as well. And I know it helps a lot with my, my relationship with my younger sister. And so it just sets the tone for this very transparent, very open friendship between the four of us that has been really, really good. 
she started to get better gradually with her drugs and her family on her side. And she pretty much takes every day as it comes. This is the interesting thing about depression and anxiety, right? I, I'll tell you a point where I, I started to feel better. It was so when you start taking your meds, they'll tell you that sometimes it takes a while before um, it starts to help. And I remember I'd been taking my meds for like three weeks. And then one day I go outside and it was like the world was in color. Wow. It was like, oh my God, this is what you probably have been enjoying. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I think it was when my meds started to work that very first time. I felt a lot better for a while. Some days are still a struggle for her though. Sometimes she's unable to function properly and still often has suicidal thoughts. I asked her if there's always a cause for her low moments. She says, it just happens. Mm. It's not exactly like that. I mean, they're triggers, right? But depression and now anxiety, right? at least to the, to the extent that I have it, is, and so my last therapist, my last psychiatrist, for like half of last year, was trying to get me to understand and accept that it's a chronic illness. It's not going anywhere. So the goal with care is to learn how to better manage it and to reduce the frequency of major depressive episodes and to help me get um, less destructive coping mechanisms. Because up until last year, I was still cutting myself. Actually, 80% of my scars on my left arm are from last year. Yeah, so um, I can better manage it now, but sometimes I get thrown curveballs like the last couple of days. SI has some healthy coping mechanisms too. And so I find that movement really helps. If I am able to get up, that's very helpful. Therapy. If anybody's listening to this, I haven't given advice since we started, right? But if anybody's listening to this right now and they live with any sort of mental illness, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, pause it and go and look for a therapist right now. That is the single most important thing you can do. And I know that is really elitist because they're expensive. I know. Like the cheapest therapy I've ever gotten is 20k an hour. Wow. And but at, at a point I was needing it like every week. But please, even if it's one, please. It's very important. And it's very important that you get a good person. So listen to yourself. How do you feel safe talking to this person? Are they qualified? I get psychiatrists because I need meds. And only psychiatrists can prescribe. Which brings me to the next thing that really helps. My meds. Like, when you start taking meds, after a while, when it starts working, mm -hmm. a huge thing that happens is you feel like you're okay. This happened to me the first time. And you're like, oh, I'm fine now. You stop taking it. <laughs> ah, the pressure is that bitch you thought. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so movement, therapy, meds, friends. Ah, uh, yes, friends. SI says her friends have been lovely and also make things better. If you yes. can find one friend that has a mental illness. <laughs> and I say that because as, as well-meaning as most people are, they don't get it. Thankfully, they don't get it. And so I was really lucky at my last job to find like just the most 
kind person and unfortunately um he lives with depression and anxiety as well and it was like oh my god and yeah so family i know fucked up shit might have happened to you and like the people who you consider family is unfortunate but you have to forgive them because that's just one load out of your shoulder to be honest and it's great to have a um, a support system so i can text my older brother now and say well i'm very sad today and he can do the same for me and that's really good let's take a quick break and i'll wrap up SI's story hi my name is aisha salaldin you already know me host and producer of i like girls i'm interrupting this episode to tell you about the podcast newsletter i'd like you to join the i like girls community by subscribing to our newsletter Every Tuesday at 12 p.m. through the newsletter, we'll send out behind-the-scenes information on topics, guests, and recordings of all our episodes. That means as a subscriber, you have first-hand information about our episodes that others don't have access to. And that's not all. You'll be among the first to know when a new episode drops. You will also be notified early about any of our activities, like the availability of merch, secret podcast events, and bonus episodes. So, subscribe to our newsletter by clicking the link in the episode notes as you listen. It takes less than 30 seconds to subscribe. And I promise, we won't spam you. Okay, let's get back to the show. Okay, so not every day is good for SI. But she has a strong support system. Her parents and siblings are amazing. She has the best friends and she's in therapy. We know how mental health is perceived in Africa. Many people would rather not talk about it. So I asked Essa if she has experienced any stigma as a result of her anxiety and depression. What's your question about stigma? Um, outside of just the early days and um, people teasing me, the most um, important, and I'm very privileged in the sense that um, due to the things that I'm interested in, like the arts and literature and all of that, I tend to be around people who, if they don't get it, they're at least sim- sympathetic, right? And I've had like really cool bosses. Like my last boss was really big on mental health. So I'm not around a lot of stigma. And honestly, I'm not jumping bosses. So like, she gets. I'm trying to explain the privilege I have. Yeah. But that does not mean everybody around her has been good to her. Some people have used her mental illness to mock her publicly. She talks to me about an incident between herself and her childhood friend. It happened last year when she worked at a radio station in Lagos. And we did radio together, like my early radio days. And so when I was working at my last place of employment, um, he's really good at what he does. And so like, I brought him on board and we became colleagues. But that meant that we had never worked together before. And worse than that, we're sharing a flat. So we're living together. And so I just got to see like another side of him that I didn't know and um, that didn't sync with me. And we're having a lot of friction, right? And it was really tedious. And this one time he did something. He used to lie a lot. And um, I felt like he used to gaslight me as well. Again, I'm only able to give my side of the story, so I might be wrong. But this one time, he was wrong. And he was at the office. And I kept trying to communicate that he was wrong. But I was very upset. And so I was shouting and just not 
speaking, just not communicating efficiently. And then he looks at me, something clocks in his head, he starts smiling, and he's like, you're crazy. You're crazy. So of so course you're lying. lying. And he's like saying it to oh, other things. And I cannot explain to you how malicious this is, because he has a wealth of context. And one of my big things as I grew older and stopped um, started writing fiction so I didn't have to start lying to people and all of that is, and I don't know if pe- other people have, who suffer from mental Ill- health feel this, but sometimes you feel like it's not actually happening and you're just being dramatic and you're just like lying or you're imagining it or whatever. So that's a big fear for me. The fact that maybe this is all in my head, right? Or stuff that happens in everyday life, I'm imagining it. And so for him to go to that place where he had that information and bring it out and weaponize it like that in front of everybody. I hit him. I slapped him. And I've never hit anybody before or since. And I hate it. But that is the single most hurtful thing anybody has ever done to me. Count the rape. Count the child molestation. Count everything. Trust me. SI knows that she had her faults in that altercation with her friend. We talked about it extensively. She regrets hitting him, but she wished that he didn't use her mental illness as an avenue to ridicule her in public. I'm going to be honest. I debated adding that story to the episode for a long while, but I decided to include it to give a real-life example of how mental illness is sometimes used against people, even by those they consider friends. Despite this reality, Essa is still very much open to loving and trusting people. She hopes people living with mental illnesses are able to do so too. I feel like a lot of people who live with mental illness, right, take that example of how um, shitty people stigmatize or you confide in a person and they weaponize it against you as a reason to not trust and um, love and open up to people. And I I don't think you should do that. I think you're doing yourself a great disservice if because a couple of because of a couple of bad people um you you hide and you don't love. And the reason why is this unfortunately we are very social animals. Telling people, saying it out loud, it helps. I don't know why, but it does. So that doesn't mean, like, you should start telling everybody. Again, you can do that if you want. I did that for a while with my writing. But if you have one or two people who get it, and in your moments of despondence, please call or text those people. Because um, suicide is, it is very, very, very spontaneous. You have, like, a max 30-minute window. It is, it is incredibly spontaneous from like when you start ideating to when you're feeling bad enough and you have something and you know how to use it and you kill yourself. And literally the, the difference between life or death for a lot of people, a lot of the time, is having a person who picks up the phone. I get that. It's important to have a strong support system and people you can talk to in low moments. SI pretty much continues to take on every new day with the energy it comes with while she enjoys things like reading and writing. She's still standing, despite all she has been through. And I hope she keeps standing. I really do. 
For our listeners out there struggling with their mental health, please reach out to a licensed mental health professional. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Like Girls. I Like Girls is produced by 27 Productions. If you'd like to get in touch with us, visit 27productions.co forward slash I Like Girls. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at I Like Girls Pod. Also, please rate and review us on whatever streaming platform you're listening on. Rating us helps other people to discover the podcast just like you. This episode is produced by me and written by Sami Atalamutu. Audio engineering is by Dusky. Our editor is Ruth Ulurumbi. And our theme music is by Banks with a double G. The rest of the music you heard throughout this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Piggyverse for sponsoring this episode. I'll catch you on the next one.